Hello, and welcome to the Homeschool Sanity Show, your prescription for happier, healthier homeschooling. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Wilson, Christian psychologist turned homeschooling mother of six. Let's get started. Hey, homeschoolers. We are living in a time of financial uncertainty, that's for sure. That's why I appreciate the biblical wisdom I got from my discussion with Scott LaPierre. You may remember him from a previous interview on Christian marriage. Scott is a father of nine who has no debt on a pastor's salary. He is the author of a new book called Your Finances, God's Way. In it and in our interview, he shares the principles that allowed his family to be debt-free. They will work for us, too. Scott, thank you so much for joining me again here on the Homeschool Sanity Show podcast. I thought we could start by having you tell us what has been happening with you and your family since we talked last yeah, thanks a lot, Melanie. Well, first, glad to be back here and have this time with you and catch up with you. And we barely even got into it. We had to actually start things all over again because we were enjoying just um, catching up so much and socializing. So, yeah, it's great to see you again. And we've been doing well as a family. We, we had another child, our ninth child, in, um, uh, well, in September. And I've been doing some more speaking. I just came back from the Teach Them Diligently conference in Pigeon Forge. There was another one in Round Rock, Texas before that. And actually, Monday and Tuesday this week, I was at the Ark on Monday and then the Creation Museum on Tuesday, taking some of my kids there. Uh, my marriage book came out with Harvest House in September, and now my finance book came out on the 3rd, so just a, a little over a week ago. Not sure when this, when this will be published, but yeah, so working on that, my, my finance book and workbook, Your Finance is God's Way, and then staying busy with my church and my family. So Yeah, so you're just really not doing much. <laughs> well that is as much as you're doing probably oh i (laughs) know no that is a lot by anyone's standards but that is um really really exciting everything that you have going on and i am so looking forward to talking with you today about finances and money management probably uh, a more important topic because of what's happening in our world with the economy and people are anxious about it. So I think it's very, very timely. And I was hoping that we could start by having you talk about the financial crisis that you experienced when your wife Katie was (laughs) expecting your first child, not what you wanted to have happen, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and completely unexpected. So I was a school teacher and I was in, I basically switched school districts. There was a military base nearby that had a, had a neat school and they offered to pay me for my military service and they received federal funding. So I didn't really want to become a principal. I wanted to stay in the classroom. And by switching to this district, I was basically going to be paid about the same as if I became a principal. And essentially I'd get enough to, you know, continue to take care of my family for years to come as our, as our family grew. But I did not anticipate the great recession of 2007 and so as most people didn't, so I sit, switched school districts. And so even though it was my eighth year teaching, which wouldn't make me like a veteran teacher, but gave me an amount of seniority if it had been my eighth year at the present school. But uh, when I switched districts, I became, a, it was, I only had one year of seniority. And so when they had to cut all their new teachers, I was one of the ones cut. 
and mm. it was an incredibly discouraging situation. It was it was even frustrating almost spiritually because I thought I'd held this loosely mm. to the Lord and been like, Lord, I'll, I'll stay at whatever district you want me at. If you don't want me to get this position, just close that door. I, I was praying that on the way to the interview. And at the interview, they offer me the job. I kind of take that as confirmation from the Lord that he wants me to get this position. And then I take this position I think God wants me to take and I get, I get laid off, you know, and then of course I can't go back to my previous district and I can't really go anywhere else because nobody's hiring. Mm -hmm. Well, I had started working part-time at a church and they kind of stretched themselves just to bring me on full-time. And so when I lost my job, I never considered them bringing me on full-time because they weren't they were stretching themselves to have me there part-time. So mm -hmm. I'm basically throwing out resumes across the country. And my pastor at the time, Joe Gruhouse, and a neat man that became a, a mentor to me said, hey, let's just see what the Lord does. We're thinking about kind of stretching ourselves to step out in faith and bring you on. We don't, we don't want you to go somewhere else. And, and I was just shocked. And they brought me on and God provided for the church and he provided for us. And it wasn't um, you know, extravagant, but interestingly, Melanie, because we'd already been living pretty frugally to give you, to give you an idea financially, my finances were, my income was cut into about half or a third of what I had. Cause when I was part-time with the church, I had that income added to my teaching salary. Mm -hmm. And so that was actually the most money I ever had made in my life. And then as soon as you take the teaching salary away, even when the church brought me on full-time, it was still about a third or half of what we made before. But you know, honestly, Melanie, to give God the glory, we were okay. We, we interestingly, even during that season paid off debt, uh, some of our debt, and we never had to change our standard of living because it was never very high anyway. So we just didn't really feel it like you might expect, you know, we weren't really pinched because we just kind of kept living after I lost my job, like we had been living, you know, before we, I had lost my job trying to pay off our mortgage. And so, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty incredible demonstration of God's faithfulness, which I wrote about in your finances, God's way, I think, to begin the book. Right. And, you know, what I, I mean, obviously God provided for you, but in your book, you also talk about uh, something else that contributed to your ability to weather that big, big cut in income. And I was hoping you could tell us what that was. And yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, and so basically people should live off less than they make in case they ever literally have to live off less than they make at that moment. And so people will generally, I mean, unfortunately, the worst case scenario is you make, let's just use round numbers, $5,000 per month and you spend $6,000 per month, right? Whether it's credit card debt you're accruing or whatever the case is. Some people consider it to be a good scenario if they make 5,000 a month and spend 5,000 a month because then they say they're not increasing their debt. I don't, I don't think that's a good approach to, to life. You're not saving, you're not paying off debt. Um, and some people will say, well, if I, if I make 5,000, I'll live off, you know, 4,500. I mean, that's better, but if you can live off, you know, if you make 6,000 and can live off 4,000 and have that $2,000 extra, and then something actually happens where you really do have to live off four or $3,000 per month. And so that's pretty much what we've been doing. We'd almost been living off of that youth pastor salary when I was um, a school teacher. And so when I lost that teaching salary, I didn't feel it as much as some, some people might. And that's a credit to my, my wife as well and her being frugal and looking for, <laughs> you know, good purchases at the store and so forth. Oh, absolutely. I know that you cannot possibly do that alone. It definitely mm -hmm. has to be a team effort. Well, most people 
listening to us right now probably would not have the same experience that you two <laughs> did, uh, being able to adjust to a much lower salary. And why is that? What What is happening that prevents them from being mm-hmm. able to make that adjustment? Yeah, Melanie, you know, I'm, I'm going to be real candid and I, I don't, definitely don't mean to offend anyone, but a lot of it is just being an American. If you live in, <laughs> if you live in America, you feel entitled. You believe that you make much less than you do. And probably all of your listeners, at least those who live in the United States, um, are considerably wealthier than they think. We, we generally kind of read the Bible and see these verses about rich people and almost always think they apply to other, other people. But judging by the living standards of most people throughout the world and pretty much everyone throughout human history, we are the wealthiest people who have ever lived. And interestingly, in our country, people who live below the poverty or are considered poor, but are below the poverty line in this country are still wealthier than many people or most people throughout the rest of the world and pretty much everyone throughout human history. There's people because the I think it's like if you're a family of four or five and you make 30 something thousand dollars or th- then you're considered uh, below the, that threshold. And those people still typically enjoy what would be considered luxuries, you know, whether it's a cell phone or television or two vehicles or something. Now, some people say, well, the cost of living is much higher in the United States. But even when you factor, and I talk about this in the book and support it with, with um, articles, so you don't think it's my opinion, but even when you factor in the cost of living, the in- income for an American is still 10 times higher than most people throughout the world. And so we're an incredibly wealthy people. And so because of that, we're just not used to living with less, having less and going without. But if we make those cuts or sacrifices in our lives, most of us can find that we can live off um, considerably less and still have, you know, plenty of food, clothing, you know, in in Timothy, Paul says, with these things, you shall be content in in 1 Timothy 6, I think it's verse 8. And that's kind of an interesting verse, because I think we wonder, what does God expect me to be content with? You know, that's that's an interesting question, isn't it? What, Mm -hmm. What exactly should I have for God to expect me to be content? And he says with food and clothing, and that Greek word for clothing, also, it means like a covering. So it would mean like shelter. So there's two ways to look at this. One way is, if you don't have food, clothing, and shelter, then literally God doesn't expect you to be content. You can be discontent because God doesn't expect you to be content while you're starving and so forth. And so you can be discontent then. But how many of us can say that's the case? We, we pretty much have what we need to be content. And if that's what we have, then, then we shouldn't believe we have to have more than that. God is gracious. And for most of mm-hmm. us, he's given us much more than that. But that's not what we we have to have. Mm-hmm. So, so true. As you were talking, I was remembering a time where my husband and I got to serve in a, a mission that was outside of Cancun, you know, like the amazing vacation destination <laughs> that so many of us love going to, mm-hmm. but not very far from the city of Cancun is a village where people live in cardboard shelters. And and we were uh, really honestly given the privilege of going and purchasing items for the people in the village and then going to their homes to deliver them. And I will never forget seeing a woman 
wearing a shirt that was so threadbare that I would have been embarrassed to give it to a a Goodwill, a thrift store. And um, at the same time, strangely enough, you know, dirt floor, uh, just really next to nothing, except there was a TV <laughs> playing. And I believe it was the Prince of Bel-Air that was, <laughs> that was mm. on the television. And I thought, how do you, how do you do it? You know, how do mm. you live in the circumstances that you are and then see someone living like a king Mm-hmm. Um, in America. And wow, I mean, what does that do to the way mm-hmm. you think about your life circumstances? And even though we don't, we don't live in poverty here in the United States, by and large, we're still subject to those same messages all the time, aren't we? That mm-hmm. we need more, we need to have, you know, the nicer car, the nicer house, um, you know, just all the things and so it's understandable even though um it's not for our good um Mm -hmm. that we are discontent but it's understandable why we give into that and then Mm -hmm. spent um more (laughs) than we should Mm -hmm. Um, yeah well i was reading this article it was about um self-storage and how self-storage has become one of the fastest growing industries not surprisingly in our nation and and really what that means is people have so much stuff that they're storing it they don't even access it they don't even they're buying it not even using it they're just looking for a place for it you know and it's like they're paying money per month to have their stuff stored and they forget what's even there you know that that's how much stuff we have um, that quote by Mark Twain. He said, "Civilization is the is the multiplication of unnecessary necessities, the lim- unlimitless uh, multiplication of unnecessary necessities." And that's kind of that's kind of um, you know how we how we could be descri- described. And I think one of the things you're maybe mentioning is social media really contributes to this because what happens is there is kind of that the Pinterest life or the Instagram life and that people have, and you're feeling pretty pretty good. About house or your car or your clothing or your family or whatever the case and then suddenly you're just bombarded by all these people who have so much more and so much better and, and it's not even real you know there was this there was a couple True. when when uh i won't go into where we, where we we're living at the time it's not here in washington and they were at the end of our street and they lived in this magnificent house and they drove bmws up and down our road and i just thought i mean i wasn't um i didn't judge them or anything you know i for all i know maybe they're very generous and great stewards or something but this one time my neighbor starts talking to me and I think knew I was a, a pastor and was, and was telling me maybe even so I could pray for them and was telling me how much they were struggling financially. Mm. And I, that really shocked me. But the idea was they had this ballooning amount of debt. So they, on the outside, it looked like this picturesque, you know, fancy house, fancy cars, fancy clothes, but can barely make enough money just to make the credit card payments type situation. And I think they, you know, are going to end up losing their house and their cars. And that's why this woman was telling me to kind of, so things, my whole point is things aren't the way that they look for, for many people Mm -hmm. on Instagram or on social media. It's always like present the, the fancier, shinier lifestyle. And it's just not, it's not, it's not accurate. Mm -hmm. So that is so good. And it causes us to be discontent as well. (laughs) Right. Right. When we don't even know what, what we're asking for. We don't want to be in that position, obviously. Mm -hmm. Well, I really want to get into talking about debt. But before we do, 
I want to ask you about the fact that so much of your book is dedicated to discussing the spiritual side Mm. of our finances. I was telling my husband about your book um, as an aside, and I described it this way. I said, you know how uh, Dave Ramsey is really all about the nuts and bolts of managing your finances and getting out of debt. And I said, and he has some some godly biblical principles kind of thrown in there. And I said, and Scott's book is all about the godly principles mm. <laughs> uh, with respect to finances you. with some how-tos, nuts and bolts of how to manage your finances and get out of debt thrown in there. Do you think that's mm-hmm. true? I do. It blesses me to hear you say that. And I'm glad that your listeners would hear you share that in case they're entertaining buying my books. They would know that ahead of time. And and I'll kind of back up and tell you a funny story. Uh, You're you're probably familiar with this because of your time publishing and so materials and so forth. But a publisher understandably asks you like, hey, you're going to write a finance book or or my marriage book. (laughs) What separates this from every other finance or marriage book out there? And you need to have an answer for that or else they're not going to be interested in your materials and most other people won't either. And I said, well, yeah. And of course, the big finance books that come to mind are like, you know, Larry Burkett or Dave Ramsey. And uh, I'm a fan. You know, my my wife just just briefly, and then I'll get. Wonder what you're saying, was a bit was not a fan of um, being frugal and paying off debt. And then she got the total money makeover. <laughs> she got that on our wet, on our honeymoon. We're driving to our honeymoon, and she's reading this, and she's saying all this stuff back to me. And I I'm not I, in my mind. I'm like, you know. I actually remember saying that to you like five or six times, but Hey, look, if it's finally gonna, gonna bear witness, cause you read it in Dave Ramsey's book, I'll take it, you know, it, cause I've been trying to talk to Katie for a long time about being debt-free and all the advantages. And she lived, she grew up with a lot of money being thrown at her and just nobody be able to spend money here and there. And I wasn't like that. And so I'm just, it's some of our first arguments were about finances. And then suddenly she's reading this book and she's reading it back to me. And I'm just like, it's sort of ironic. I was like, I can remember where I was when I said that to you, you know? Um, I love it. So, anyway, so I like Dave Ransby. Dave mm-hmm. Ransby, Total Money Makeover mm-hmm. has a special place in my heart. With that said, um, it isn't a biblically centered book. Mm-hmm. And what I shared with Harvest House, and for any of your you know, listeners should know this as well, is I kind of took the approach that I see in the epistles. So for example, the epistles are generally theology followed by application or doctrine followed by application. And the idea is there's going to be this doctrine, let's say Romans, you know, you got chapters one through 11, the application begins in 12 to 16. You know, you got Galatians, it's going to be chapters one to four, the applications, chapters five and six, Ephesians one to three, and then the application four to six. You know, that's a common approach. And I think it's because Paul or God, but using Paul as his vessel or other New Testament writers as well, are going to deal with people's hearts. And when the heart is changed, that's going to produce outward change. Mm. So when there's the inward change, it produces the outward change. And so for me, I tell people at the beginning of the book, and, and you know, from reading it, like I let them know, hey, you're not going to get a bunch of, you're not going to get to chapter one and see what you, all these great things to do or not do with your finances. You're going to kind of have to wait till some later chapters these early chapters are going to be about stewardship, faithfulness, um, kind of understanding an eternal perspective of money. And once I think people embrace that, then they're going to be willing to do the things described in the following chapters. 
but you, we know this from parenting. I mean, you, you, you know, I, you've probably forgotten more about parenting than I, than I've ever learned. And so, oh, you I know, know that if you that. want, <laughs> you know, if you want, uh, I mean, that's your, if you want children to do something, you can't just deal with the outward or it's not going to last. There's going to be this momentary change, but you want to see lasting change. You got to deal with the heart. I mean, that, and that's the, with the gospel too, you know, that there's that parable of the unclean spirit. And the main point of that is temporary change um, is a common uh, uh, behavior for us. You know, the unclean spirit leaves the house, mm-hmm. the house is clean, looks good, but then the demon returns. And the, I, this isn't really a parable of a demon possession. Mm-hmm. but it's much harder to change um, indefinitely. And so, you know, New Year's resolutions are a great example of that. They just don't, don't last, you know? And so what we need is when a heart is changed, then you're going to get lasting change. Mm-hmm. So that's why the chap- early chapters are written that way. And it blesses me you picked up on that. Oh, definitely. And it's it's very, very well done. It's not just a bunch of... Um, you know, platitudes taken from scripture that you don't flesh out and provide really, really excellent examples to help us connect with it um, and, and obviously apply it. And I think it would be a fantastic Bible study, the whole book really, and you have a workbook uh, that goes with it as well, would be an excellent thing to do with a group at your church. It would be an excellent thing to go through with older students, high school students in particular. Uh, my my high school students did a Dave Ramsey personal finance course, and I think that your book would have made an excellent Thanks. supplement to that course. And so I highly commend it for that purpose. Mm, praise God. Well, Thank you. Yeah, you are so welcome. Well, I want to talk about charitable giving because you spend quite a bit of time talking about that as well. And it just so happens that I was discussing this very topic with some friends today that I keep having people ask me for money. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) um, And uh, not, not that they, you know, it's just not, it's not random people. I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. talking about panhandlers um, at the intersection. I'm not talking about that. I'm I'm talking about people, uh, some of whom are in ministry, some of whom have very, um, you know, worthy causes. But it's it's challenging to figure out who should I give to, how much should I give, and so I was hoping you could talk about some of the general principles. I know it's not going to answer my specific questions or our listeners' specific questions, but what are some general principles that you took from Scripture to tell us about how we um, handle that part of our finances? Okay, well, you, you kind of asked one thing, and I want to make sure I kind of deal with, okay. you said two things. You you started okay. to, you wanted to know about how we're supposed to give, but you also started to discuss um, when we shouldn't give or when giving makes us poor stewards, and I'll, I'll, I'll think I'll deal with okay. that second Great. part after, but um, you know, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The premier chapters on giving in scripture are 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where Paul is using the Macedonians as this incredible example to the Corinthians, and 
I know this is kind of controversial. And if some people flare up against this, I would just invite them to be guided by scripture. But the old covenant commanded giving a tithe. It was, it was almost more of a tax or taxation type system. Um, you can, we're under the new covenant. You know, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Like Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. There are certain parts of the old covenant, the ceremonial portions we don't hold to today, whether it's sacrifices or gardening certain ways or fabrics, you know, we don't worry about mixing them together. There was different commands God gave Israel that set them apart as a nation to be holy. They weren't necessarily moral commands in nature. There's plenty of moral commands, not to lie, not to steal, not to kill. Those are carried forward under the new covenant. But those amoral, not moral or moral, but amoral commands, those ceremonial ones help set Israel apart. And so that we, we, I think we all recognize there are commands we're not under. And there's no command in the New Testament to tithe. In fact, the word tithe is only mentioned, you know, to, I think three times and never in a context of, of, of uh, commanding us to do something. Like when it's mentioned in Hebrews, it just says that Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. That's not a command for us to, to give a tithe. So it begs the question, if we're not, and even the Old Testament command of multiple tithes, it, it brought the percent a lot closer to 23 or 24%. And so if someone did feel bound to give a tithe, according to the Old Testament, it should be a lot closer to one out of $4 that's given. But um, so then the question is, well, if we don't have to give a tithe, then how do we know how much to give? So we don't get a percent, but we do get principles. And I tried to look at those principles in my book. Um, you know, we're expected to give sacrificially. We know that we know the parable of the woman that gave the two, um, to my, you know, the two pennies, basically she had, and Jesus says that she gave more than all the other people combined. Well, why is that? Because it's not about the amount it's about the mm -hmm. sacrifice. And there's a lot more sacrifice involved in that. And it's not to say we have to give, if we only have two cents left that we should give that, but Christ, I think um, there is a, there are some good examples in the old Testament. Like I remember when David, he went to this gentleman, Aruna, God told him to build an altar and then, and sacrifice on it to stop this plague. And he goes to Aruna and Aruna thinks incredibly highly of David and says, David says, can I buy your threshing floor? I need to build this altar. And Aruna's like, I'll give you the threshing floor. I'll give you the wood for the altar. I'll give you the animal for the sacrifice. I'll give you basically everything. And David says, I refuse to give God anything or I refuse to sacrifice to God anything that doesn't cost me. Hmm. Or in other words, I refused to give God a sacrifice that doesn't involve any sacrifice because mm -hmm. a sacrifice that doesn't involve any sacrifice isn't really a sacrifice. And so that's the same with our giving. You know, I'm not going to say how much people should give, but they should feel it. There should be some sacrifice involved in it. At the same time, it should be done willingly. That's That was the um, interesting part of the Old Testament tithe is it wasn't, you had to give willingly or unwillingly. I mean, this mm -hmm. is what God commanded. And so the way that Abraham gave to Melchizedek separate from the law, because the law hadn't been given yet, is really the way God wants us to give out of an out of a heart of worship and a, a response to what the Lord has done for us. And if you just think about it, what is a better way to give? Because you feel obligated or compelled. I mean, that's what Paul says, not of compulsion. So you give because you're compelled to give, or you give because you're thankful to give and you're and you're just overwhelmed by what Christ has done for you. And it's a blessing to you to be able to give back to the Lord in this way. Um, and so that's, I talk about that principle um, generously. God wants us giving generously, willingly, sacrificially. And, and the last thing I'd say is joyfully. Now that's kind of difficult for, at least for me and probably many other people, because it's almost like 
there's this tension, you know, people could be listening. It's like, well, Pastor Scott, you know, you said give sacrificially. Now you're saying give joyfully. And it's like one or the other. <laughs> you know, I can't do both. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you're either telling me to give sacrificially or you're telling me to give joyfully, but don't tell me to do both because they're mutually exclusive. But the reality is, I think we can do both. We can recognize, hey, I am sacrificing here. And that does cause me joy because it is nice to be able to do for the Lord, you know, I don't want to say repay because that almost sounds like tip for tap, but just out of a heart of worship, mm-hmm. you, you get what mm-hmm. I'm saying. And so, um, so yeah, I think that New Testament giving is a really important principle that can, can kind of be, lo- some people, if they're doing well, and this could be a lot of people in the United States, should give a lot more than 10%. And there are other people, and I'm not trying to make an allowance mm-hmm. for people to avoid giving, but it's reasonable you, there's some cancer diagnosis, the medical bills are piling mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. you know, there's the mother or the single mother and her, her husband passed away, whatever the case, God isn't going to expect her to be giving as much or him, whatever. There are circumstances mm-hmm. that can allow God to expect us to give less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, okay. I want to um, move on from giving, which is so, so important. And, and you talk about how crucial it is that everyone is giving and that we don't wait until we're out of debt to start giving to the Lord. And you give some great examples on that concept. But I wanted to dig in a little bit deeper on debt. I think most of us understand that it makes no sense to go into debt because we have purchased things that we really didn't need and probably don't even want after a short period of time. We don't want them Mm -hmm. anymore. And so that makes sense to everyone. But you talk about your position on debt and the big purchases like homes and cars. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more what your thoughts are on that? Yeah. So the big one, is mortgages. So let's just briefly set that aside and I'll return to it if we have time. Um, I don't see any allowance for debt, for consumer debt. If you've never been told that it's a bad idea to, or maybe you've even been told 20 times it's a bad idea to buy a new vehicle. Let me tell you for the 21st time. I mean, (laughs) there's almost nothing in life that you're going to lose money. You have to be at a poker table to lose money that quickly. I mean, you drive this thing off the lot and it immediately drops like 15, 20. It's just but there's still a lot of people that do it. And so you, if you want to, and so you're like, well, I want a vehicle with low miles. We'll go buy a used vehicle that has 4,000 miles on it. You can do that. You can look and then you'll still save yourself 10 or $15,000 even. And so mm-hmm. I highly discourage people from um, going into debt for vehicles or any consumer, um, any consumerism, you know, vacations, food, clothing, do the best you can to just buy all that with cash. The difficulty is with mortgages because people think I can never save up mm-hmm. that much money. And I get it. And I will say this, mm-hmm. if someone's going to go into debt, at least just let it be for a mortgage and not, and not something else. It, it's, and it's viewed differently because it's an asset that can appreciate. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always appreciate. We just talked about 2007 and then housing, housing prices right. plummeted. It was, it, everyone was upside. Many people were upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically houses do appreciate and that makes it more of an, an asset than a liability. But I will, I will say this, Dave Ramsey said the same thing. And I've seen it. We have some people in our church. There's a gentleman that lived with his wife and their five boys in a, in a motorhome that was broken down while they built, while he built their house. Now, some people can't build a house like me, but they could live in a motorhome while they save up. Uh, there's another gentleman that he had his seven kids in a two bedroom place while he, you know, saved up. And so 
people can do it. It's just kind of an issue of whether we're willing to sacrifice that much. And the other thing is, I think when we think about buying a house, we kind of think we have to jump to our dream house. And I kind of think, I'm not saying we're going to buy seven houses in our lifetimes, but your house can grow with your family. So your first house doesn't have to be your dream house. And so you buy your, whether it's a three bedroom, two bath, your 14 or 1500 square foot house. And then your maybe your family grows and then you're like you or me, you know, six kids or something. And then, and then you're going to your four bedroom house and you sold your house, hopefully for some uh, amount of gain. And then you've also got the money that you've saved up and can buy that next house. I mean, those are nice, nice approaches, but if people like are willing to not do as much, not go as many places, not eat out as much, cut the movies, cut the luxury coffee. There's an incredible amount that people can save over time to buy the house with cash or at least buy a lot of the house with cash and even have a smaller mortgage. Mm, Definitely. Okay. So I'm going to let you play Dave Ramsey (laughs) just a bit at the end here. What is your best advice to someone who already has debt? Mm-hmm. It's not, you're going to have to sacrifice. There's really no way around it. I mean, that's kind of an umbrella that covers so many principles. Um, you're, you're going to have to decide that you will go without many things for a season. And one of the things I like to tell people is you can become as enthusiastic about paying off debt as you were previously about spending. That's hard for people to believe, but when you start seeing that mortgage or that debt go down, it can become incredibly exciting. And then next thing you know, you want to throw your extra money at that. You know, you get the you get that inheritance or you get that tax return and the and in the past the first thing you thought of was going to the store to spend it or and now the first thing you think is I cannot wait to throw this however much it is at my mortgage to see that come down. Mm -hmm. And so there can, it's kind of the principle, you know, the Bible calls it putting off and putting on or severing and replacing like Ephesians four, Colossians three. Those aren't the only things that those practices apply to. They apply to all areas of life. And so you can put off poor spending habits and you can put on, um, you know, good debt elimination practices. You put off one, you put on something else, right? There's a vacuum that's left. The idea is you don't just stop something without starting something else. And as you stop poor spending practices, you can begin very good practices that allow that mortgage and, and debt to come down. And it gets exciting. You know, yeah. you can celebrate as a family, you're, you involve your kids, you show them and, and say, Hey, we're getting this much closer. And, and this month we're able to put this much and it's coming down and, and it's probably only a few more months away, or, or maybe it's a couple of years away, but when the kids get involved and it's kind of a family affair, that can be very exciting and obviously very instructive for them as well. Excellent. Well, we barely scratched the surface of what you have to say on that topic and the other topics that we've discussed, but you can find out everything that Scott has to say about managing your finances God's way in his book. Where is the best place to get that? Uh, if people like, you know, are comfortable with Amazon, then go ahead and, and shop there. That's a great place for, for them to get it. Um, the workbook and the book are there. And I think they're running Amazon rent some discounts on that. And yeah, that's what I, I don't sell it person directly from my website. Uh, and so I'm glad for people to get it there. So. All right. And I will share a link to the book, of course, in the show notes. Well, Scott, this was wonderful as it was before. Thank you so much for the inspiration for 
anyone who is wanting to get control of their finances and and not just that but have more peace of mind and mm-hmm. more trust in God where money is concerned. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know Melanie, if I just if I have yeah, just one more minute, I appreciate what you said there because uh, I didn't mention it earlier but you said peace and one of the greatest causes of anxiety for people is typically finances. Few things keep people awake at night or cause as much stress and anxiety as, as finances do. It is a blessing to me to think about people, you know, reading my book and using my workbook and sleeping better at night, having less struggles in marriage or in their families. Um, you know, as a marriage counselor, I moved from marriage to finances. And in marriage counseling, the three biggest issues are parenting, in-laws, and then finances. And so there's a lot of stress there too. So yeah, if, and if anyone's interested in learning more about me, my website is scottlapierre.org. I'm sure you'll put, put that in the show notes too. And I'd love to hear anyone, hear from anyone if I can pray for you or answer any questions or serve you in any way, please be sure to reach out to me through the contact page on my website. Thanks for having me, Melanie. I really appreciate all you're doing and just the opportunity to be back here and catch up with you and your listeners. Well, thank you. That was just a wonderful word of encouragement for all of us. The truth is, I don't read a lot of finance books, so I wasn't sure I would enjoy your finances God's way, but I loved it. It is so well written and would make a wonderful faith-affirming study for your church or small group. To find a link to the book and to Scott's website, go to homeschoolsanity.com slash yourfinances. Before I close, I want to let you know that I'm in the process of incorporating my Cycle with Six website into homeschoolsanity.com. Part of that process was rebranding my social media accounts as Homeschool Sanity, even though the following audio doesn't reflect that. This summer, I'll be sharing a new website design and new podcast branding. But for now, it's under construction, kind of like we all are. I'll be heading to GHC in Ontario, California this month. If you're joining me there, I do hope you'll stop by the Grammar Galaxy Books booth. Have a happy homeschool week. Thank you for joining me. Happy, healthy homeschooling can be yours. It begins with one small step. Let's continue the conversation on social media. I'm at Cycle with Six. This has been a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network.